Welcome to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast, hosted by Collegium Student Fellows together with senior members of our team. This podcast features interviews with visiting scholars and faculty authors of new work that help us to appreciate the shape of life today, both in its dynamism and in its timelessness. Here we approach the mysteries of reality with wonder, exploring from a wide variety of disciplinary angles, all of which revolve around a core commitment to the unity of truth. Here, authors make the case for how and why their books are important, not just for specialists in their own field, but for all of us inside the university and out who seek wisdom for a life well lived. So my name is Calista Dyer, and I'm a sophomore at Penn studying psychology and American Sign Language. Um, I'm currently a fellow in the program for research on religion and urban civil society and Collegium Institute. For today's episode of The Wheel, we are delighted to welcome Kate Soper, philosopher, author, and professor emerita at London Metropolitan University. Her 2020 book, Post-Growth Living for an Alternative Hedonism, proposes a slower, less consumerist way of life. This would require a shift away from our present emphasis on constant growth and production, which forces us into an unsatisfying cycle of working and spending. Her perspective is also unique in that it isn't grounded in the idea that we must forgo all pleasures to spare the environment, but instead emphasizes all the pleasures we might find by slowing down, working less, and using our free time to do the things we love. So welcome, Dr. Sofer. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah, we're we're so excited to have you. Um, to start off, pretty general, we were just wondering um, when you were first struck by the many environmental problems faced and created by our society today, like what caught your attention? Uh, well, I mean, actually, my engagement with environmental politics goes back a very long way. I mean, at least until as far back as the 1980s. Mm. And in a way, I suppose I came to it in two ways. I mean, one was that my first, my PhD work Mm. ended up being around the theory of needs, particularly the theory of needs, or rather the absence of any theory of need in Marxism, because I was at that time studying at Sussex University Mm. as an MA philosophy student and then progressed to do this PhD around the concept of need. And I was struck then by by two kind of discourses within Marxist philosophy, one suggesting a more essentialist approach to needs, namely that we we can suffer from alienation, we cannot have our true needs uh, fulfilled and so on. But the other one being much more relativist, really, because needs were being historically developed, as it were, so that we were constantly changing our needs. Mm -hmm. And this kind of um, caught my attention and became the focus of my my postdoc study. Mm -hmm. You know, is there any true theory of needs? How do we actually reconcile these two kind of positions? Well, if you can't, ultimately. But um, obviously, the whole question of what constitutes human needs is at the centre of you know, what we want to rethink around the environment and uh, particularly in the present uh, 
era, really, where we're so concerned about ultimate sustainability, even within the next 100 or 200 years. So the whole question of how can we actually um, create a world which not only provides um, for the satisfaction of needs across different cultures and in perpetua, as it were, um, but also do that in ways that are um, environmentally sustainable yeah. in the long term. So that that was somehow, I mean, it's through my interest in theory of need, theory of consumption, theory of welfare that I got to it. But I've also more recently, and this is the argument in the sense behind the new book, Post-Growth uh, Living, felt that a lot of engagements of our in our own time now with the with climate change and environmental degradation has has been more focused on um, the damage we're doing to nature mm-hmm. and often gone together with quite doom laden and apocalyptic warnings about mm-hmm. uh, the the horrors in in store. Yeah. If we don't change our ways, but much less has been much less focus has been placed on the role of consumption in the creation of that damage, and with the ways in which we might want to change that and change it not simply be, regrettably that we'll have to give up things and belt tighten and and go back to living in caves, as some critics have put it. You know. But actually, not only would it, you know, would it actually be a more sustainable way forward to change our ways of consuming, but we might also fare better, in other words, so that, so that the emphasis of the book, as you were suggesting in your opening remarks, is, is very much on uh, the possibilities using this this moment of crisis as an opportunity to rethink consumption along lines so that would be better for us as well as better for the planet. And in and in arguing this, I've put quite a lot of stress on what I call the downsides or the more uh, dystopian aspects of current consumerist ways of living, uh, by which I'm, you know, I'm, I'm talking here about the the air pollution, the car congestion, the time scarcity, the stress, the particular consumer-driven forms of illness, which of course include stress, but also you know obesity and all the ills that follow from that, and so on. Uh, the commercialization of children, the massive amounts of often very toxic waste, the noise, the the stench, and so on. So. There are these downsides, even to what we think of as the good life. Mm-hmm. Um, and in uh, focusing on that, I've also pointed to the ways in which now, among some of the more affluent communities who are in a position to enjoy that consumerist lifestyle, there is also a certain amount of concern, disaffection with the downsides. But also, I think, concern about the impact of affluent consumption on the long-term future of the planet. I mean, there is a concern about 
how our children and grandchildren even are going to contend with the kinds of consequences that the scientists are telling us will ensue if we continue as we are. So those are the sorts, of, that's the sort of context in which I've engaged um, with these kinds of issues um, and the consumption dimensions of the environmental politics. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I was saying in some of my research um, on you previously, I found that you've written other books uh, mm-hmm. on humanism and environmentalism, um, like your t- 2009 work, The Politics and Pleasures of Consuming Differently. Um, so I was wondering, how is this book different? And has anything changed in your perspective since that book? Or, um, yeah. Right. Um, I suppose the answer here is some things have changed, but it's a continuous engagement. I mean, uh, well, at least at least since the politics and pleasures of consuming differently, because that is definitely about alternative hedonist ways of living a lot. But that's a collection of articles, so it's not a single authored book. I mean, I wrote an introduction for that, which is, you know, along the lines that I've been talking over with you already, and which is carried over in the book. Mm. Um, But the, I mean, the earlier and probably most widely read book um, is the one on the conceptualization of nature, what is nature, culture, politics, and the non-human. And clearly that is actually, as its title suggests, more engaged with thinking through um, what we mean by nature and the various implications of the kind of appeal that is made to nature, particularly by the environmental movement, where it is seen as a very positive and, um, and generally generally um, something we have to protect and um, observe. But of course, at the time I was writing, there was also a whole other spectrum of appeals to the concept of nature, mainly coming out of movements around gender and sexuality where you know the the idea of defending particular kind of forms of patriarchy or sexist behavior as nature was a, was deeply problematic mm. so I, so in that book i was you know rather than engaging with the issue of consumption i was engaging with the with the tension between two different ways of thinking about about nature, one coming out of the environmental movement and one largely coming out of feminism and movements around gender and sexuality. So there was a sort of attempt to think through these, you know, these differing discourses around nature, even though, as I was arguing, very often there was a common political point of view. I mean, both, you know, feminists were embracing the environmental politics and, and environmentalists were also. So, so that, was, that was what was happening in that book. And then increasingly I focused of late and continued that engagement and focus with consumption um, in my recent work. What is particularly different in a way about this book is that it's not really an academic book. Or if it is, it's a it's a kind of marginal academic book. Uh, and what I wanted to do was to create um, a text that would be 
readable outside the academy and had a more political focus um, than would normally be the case for an academic text. So although it's kind of got the academic paraphernalia, the footnotes and all the rest of it, it's it's not. It, I mean, I, I think of it as an appeal to action in some ways, and as some something of a of a, a you know a text that can that can help people to think through what might be the necessary politics of change, um, and importantly, and I, I want to emphasise. Uh, I'm not an economist, so this is not an argument that deals in detail with the defence of post-growth economics. Mm. What I argue is that I don't think there will ever be a mandate within affluent communities like yours in the States or ours here in the UK, and there will never be a political mandate unless we, if some, it goes hand in hand or is in, in a sense preceded by some kind of cultural revolution in our thinking around the key concepts of prosperity, of development, of progress, of the good life and so on. So I see my book as a contribution to post-growth economic thinking by having a focus on the cultural revolution, as it were, that would be an essential precondition of getting enough support within the democratic community to begin to to rethink the economic order as we need to, ultimately, in a much more radical way than is currently on the agenda. Yeah. And you mentioned that... um you kind of changed the genre. It's a little bit less academic. Um, so who was your target audience? Like, who did you hope would read this book? Um, um, well, I, I mean, I think the book is, I don't know how it's selling in the United States. Um, you may have a better idea than I do. I mean, it was obviously marketed there. And the, the, I think the Chinese have bought the rights and things. So that, that it's, it's a book that is, got a kind of international readership, I think, potentially. And I think it's selling quite well in Scandinavia, maybe in Germany, although it's not translated. Um, and I, I imagine the people who are interested in reading it in those circles are already concerned about environmental politics, um, interested in the up-and-coming um, network of ideas and movements around degrowth economics. I mean, you know, not so long ago, um, you could talk about degrowth as a, as a project and people practically reached for the straitjacket because it was regarded <laughs> as so kind of off the wall, you know. Um, now it's an increasingly talked and thought about way of proceeding. I mean, I, no one's saying we get there overnight but that maybe ultimately we need to think about moving beyond, uh, you know, a, a capitalist growth, GDP-driven way of thinking about economics and progress mm-hmm. into something for whose ultimate goal would be a more uh, reproductive or steady state kind of economic order, and that that would be essential ultimately to meeting the demands of environmental protection. 
So I think the the audience for this book is partly drawn from from this growing body of of, of persons and concerns around degrowth, but also I think it's it's probably it is probably its focus on consumption that's likely to prove the more unique kind of aspect of my argument because a lot of environmentalists of course will say of course we need a more egalitarian culture we need to move beyond growth what i'm you know what i focus on here is the um the importance of and the pleasures that, that we could have from changing our consumption so is it's, it's emphasis on pleasure that probably appeals to quite a lot of people as a, as a rethinking of of consumerism, um, but having said all that, I think probably in a one inevitably, I think one of my target readerships was here in the UK on the left, hmm. um, and in my last chapter in the book, I actually engage with the hypothetical question about what might be the political formation and how to get there um, if we were to try to build a, 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 a more um, green um, left formation that could actually command some kind of a mandate in a parliamentary election. Yeah. But I think some of it is of relevance in any affluent culture, you know, including, of course, America, although the situation is in many ways so, so different. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was reading it through the lens of a college student, right? And um, so the first thing I thought of was the role of, um, like, social media and technology and all of this. Um, and I remember watching The Social Dilemma, which was a big hit on Netflix for a while. I'm not sure if you heard of it, but... Um, <laughs> so. It, no, it focused like this huge role um, of media and apps uh, as like subtle advertisers and like promoting consumerism and getting us to buy things. And sometimes, you know, we don't even yeah. notice. Yeah. Um, right. And um, so I was going to ask, um, how does social media um, or our online presence um, affect our participation in on, like alternative hedonism? Um, is that like um, a reason <laughs> you get less? This might not be well, expertise. I, I want you lot to get into that. <laughs> I mean, it, the thing is, I have to confess that I am not. Um, I'm, I'm not a social media user. Mm -hmm. I'm not on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I don't do social media, actually. I mean, I have a, I mean, partly I'm too old, you know. It's a lot of self-control. <laughs> <laughs> over 40 and much less well maybe maybe you see i'm even over 60 i'm over 70 now so um you know we didn't grow up with social media in the same way and we're not uh as familiar uh it's not part of our kind of form of communication in the same way and i so i i don't really have a very knowledgeable engagement with that i mean it has struck me that social media is very well placed as it were to spread mm -hmm. a lot of alternative consumption alternative hedonist messages if if enough people get enough concern to do that and one of the areas which has been in a sort of way indicative of the things 
the way that things can change around consumption due to social media pressure. At least I would say so. You can tell me better, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, your, your generation, I, you know, one hopes is going to kind of be using social media in the way that it, it, you know, can be used to actually change our ways of thinking about these things. But I have noticed that um, increasingly around the issue of fashion, for example, mm-hmm. and influence, the use of influencers to um, to promote various forms of consumption of fast fashion and so on. This, this has you know, this has been modified, I think, recently by people who are kind of concerned about not only the environmental consequences, but also the horrendous conditions in which fast fashion is produced by workers in places like Bangladesh and so on, and the uh, both the exploitation and the horrible accidents that occur. And so these sweatshop conditions combined with the unsustainable nature of fast fashion have now, I think, led to a number of exchanges using social media platforms of various kinds to begin to rethink um, what we mean by fashion, what, whether we couldn't, um, in a sense, shift away from the obsession with constant newness mm. um, and um, rely more on our own forms of bricolage and invention and creativity. And also, you know, there's been a huge move now towards um, second-hand clothing and, and this kind of thing. So I, it's in these kind of areas that it could be that social media could have a major impact, I think, in changing consumption habits. Yeah. Um, I mean, fashion is, and maybe the similar, the other example, I suppose, is the great shift. I don't know if it's happened in, in America yet, but we here have had a huge shift towards low meat diets and veganism. Mm. Um, and that, I think, has been fueled immensely by the exchanges on, on social media. Right. I mean, it's so much so here that, that vegan, it's vegan has become an advertising slogan in itself. Mm-hmm. Manufacturers are sticking it on everything now that they can. Because, I mean, and this has changed very rapidly. And again, but I think it perhaps isn't. I don't know. What do you think? Do you agree? I mean, are you moving to, is there a big movement towards veganism in the US now? Well, so I grew up in a really small town. Um, and so I think it was very unpopular here. But then uh, moving to Philadelphia, which is obviously this big city um, and with oh. a bunch of college students, oh. um, I saw it so much more. Um, I'm, I'm a vegetarian myself, um, like, but I think college had a huge influence on me in that in that way. Oh. Um, so I definitely saw an increase, but I don't know if that was um, a change in my location or a change um, in society. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's in these kinds of areas of consumption that social media can make a difference um, and influences, as it were, shift in their own positionings of what they kind of endorse and can become more eco-sensitive and so on. So uh, it's harder, of course, if you want to make uh, a big difference in consumption around issues of transport or mm-hmm. work. Right. How we work, how we transport ourselves, because those are very much more dependent on changing the sustaining facts, you know, the more structural and sustaining features of our society. 
Right. Um, but but there is a consumer power, obviously. You know, I mean, if you don't buy it, it won't sell. That's yeah. going to ultimately have a have an impact. You know. Yeah, it seems to go the other way around. Manufactured. Oh yeah, I, I was going to say it, it seems to go the other way around too, right? Uh, the more people who um, eat plant-based diets, the more people are going to sell plant-based diets um, and that sort of thing. So yes, that's yeah. right, exactly. I mean, you can use the market in that way. There are other issues, I think, where it's less easy to see to to simply say don't consume. I mean, you can't, you know, um, in areas like one's work life, there is very much less choice for the vast majority of employees and when it comes to transport you can't I mean how do you give up on your automobile if there's no obvious alternatives being provided so we, we would need you know much more provision of public transport means or and cycling and and so on you know um, which is obviously this is happening a bit here in the UK. We're not ideal by a long chalk. I mean, it's better, much better in Scandinavia, for example. Mm. America, you've got particular problems with transport, particularly aviation and the automobile, because you know the vast distances involved. Um, and those shifts, I you know, I think are much are harder to to take on and to make a big difference in without uh, without changing the the you know the more of the fundamental patterns for everyday living for most people yeah. right um so i guess a related question uh, looking into the future um i know a lot of these changes are like you're saying pretty difficult to make or um at least uh, far out in some people's minds but uh what are what are some concrete personal changes you think we should make um at this point, what are my concrete personal yeah, sure. changes? Do you mean in everyday consumption? Do you mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not a very, um, I may not be a very good person to ask in one sense because <laughs> I've been retired for such a long time, so I have a lot of free time anyway. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but um I suppose I live in a kind of alternative hedonist way. That's to say, I uh, um I'm but I know that I'm I'm fortunate to be able to do that. Mm. I mean I have you know, I've got my own house. I don't have to go out to work mm. and I've got a garden. And I've also got an allotment. So I, I spend quite a lot of time growing my own vegetables. Um, and we cook um, every day our own food. Um, we have, you know, we make a bit of a ritual out of eating, and at least in the evening. We're not, we don't eat fast food. Mm -hmm. We never buy fast food from outlets. Um, and... Um, as an act, as a former academic, I still kind of carry on with some bits of academic writing, and I do a lot of reading. And uh, of course, the pandemic shut things down <clears throat> for the time being in lots of other respects. But um, I like uh, playing music, and so I mean, my 
I'm very low consumption in various areas. I don't think I've bought any new clothes to speak of. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hardly ever buy new clothes. But, mm-hmm. um, so that that's always been. Um, and we, we don't waste food. And um, there are these kinds of, you know, just everyday practices. We recycle. Uh, and perhaps the thing that I think is probably most different I and my husband or we don't use the car Mm. as much I mean we're both quite elderly now we do have a car but it can stay for up to two or three weeks you know just parked without being used so we're cyclists we cycle all the time we walk all the time and we use the bus, which most people don't. We live in a small village, actually, in the south of England. Mm. And we're often the only people using the bus, which is a shame. You know, I mean, although the buses are there, people don't use them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we make a point. This is probably the biggest difference in some ways. We make a point of avoiding using the car as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And we don't fly, to speak of. I mean, we. this is difficult because I've got a daughter in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it's a bit unfair on her because mm. she does most of the time <laughs> but, uh, when she comes over. But so there are, there are these kinds of, but we don't, I, I'm, I'm a bit frightened of flying anyway. So, you know, I don't have a, a big disincentive. But for environmental reasons, um, we have, we're both very low flyers. Yeah. yeah. Not, I don't exclude it altogether, but right. as little as possible. Yeah. yeah. Is, is, that, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, they look like pretty like small changes, but you just um, kind of work up to them and, um, you know, they add up. It's kind of like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and in a way, you know, I mean, one of my arguments really has been is, which is developed in the book, is about the need to actually rethink the whole way in which our culture is so work-driven. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we want to protect the environment, ultimately we have, I think, to think in terms of not being driven constantly by the by growth, which means, you know, constantly creating new new stuff or new services constantly having more advertisements budgets to try to persuade people to you know um, produce to to consume this new stuff to buy and consume this new stuff constant introduction of built-in forms of obsolescence so that you know things wear out um, we need to get beyond that sort of way of thinking about production and satisfaction for needs. Um, And that means, I think, that we need to now think in terms of working less, particularly in, you know, the so-called developed affluent cultures who are, after all, responsible Mm. for almost all, it's all the environmental damage is really being done Mm. by affluent societies and their forms of consumption. Mm. Now, in order to do that, I think we do have to move to a post-work 
we have to think in terms of moving to a post-work culture. To uh, I don't say the elimination of all work. Obviously, we can't eliminate all work, and we don't want to, I don't think. But we can think in terms of a three- to four-day week, uh, which would also require the introduction of some kind of UBI, a universal basic income, a citizen's income of some kind, to allow people who, to, to, you know, to meet their needs, even if they weren't working at all. Um, and we need to shift to thinking of free time as equally part of what it is. The enjoyment of free time is part of what it is to prosper. Not, you know, we at the moment we're always thinking in terms of work as a serious activity, and of the activity where people are are in a sense supposedly fulfilling themselves. Although a lot of work is very tedious and very boring, mm. um, and then free time is not regarded as as contributing to growth, which it doesn't, of course. Where we're idling away, we're not contributing. Um, but I, we need to change that way of thinking, um, shift to what I've sometimes called the more ludic culture, where we're thinking in terms of, of the importance of actually not working, of playing more, of, um, of engaging um, in intrinsically valuable activities, more conviviality, a relaxed kind, um, more uh, obviously eco-sensitive and sustainable ways of using our free time, but not producing as much, really. Um, and then I think we... One consequence of that might be that we would need to rethink education as well, because education would then become not driven by vocational thinking. I mean, you know, a lot of education is seen simply as preparation for a job, for a career. But we, we should also, I think, think of education as a preparation for life more generally, so that... Um, People, you know, people can't enjoy having more free time, and they certainly can't find ways of enjoying that free time in um, benign ways from the environmental point of view, unless they they are probably given um, the kind of education that allows them to spend more time in reading and making music or dancing or theatre or or performance arts of various kinds. Mm. So I think that the humanities and the creative um, parts of education would need to become more important and not be regarded as, you know, nice to have, but not the key things that we really need. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, right. And you can definitely see them being kind of... And I... In that sense, I'm already a slightly favoured person because I have, you know, um, an arts education, you know, which, you know, does serve people well mm. when they have more free time in their retirement, I think. Mm -hmm. I think um, the knee-jerk reaction to a lot of uh, this, you know, talk of uh, working less and having more free time, um, 
you know, the, the, the reaction is, wow, that's, it's almost too good to be true. Like, how would we, um, how would we do it? Right. Like, um, how would we make it work? Uh, it feels like I already, you know, I'm working so hard and, and not, and not making enough or um, that kind of thing. So what would you say to people who would, you know, would react that way? How it's possible. Well, I don't think it is possible to be honest within a growth driven capitalist economy. Yeah. Uh, but, if we, so it's a big ask mm. because there's not the kind of support for changing that system at the moment, although there's quite a lot of criticism of it. And I don't know what it was like in America, but I mean, here in Britain, there is, you know, the, the during the first lockdown of the pandemic, people were saying they didn't want to go back to the old economic order. Um, only 6% of people at the end of June last year wanted to return to the economic um, system that we had before. I mean, I don't know if that still holds good. So there is a, there is a sort of interest in and concern, I think, about changing our economy. And that would have to be, um, I don't think we can move to a much less work-driven society that's that's going to be pleasurable and sustainable unless we move away from growth from the growth driven economy if we do that then i think we're no longer caught up in the need to make as much in as short a time as possible so that we can in a sense we could choose the rhythm and pace of work much more, uh, which meant, means that we could possibly combine quite high-tech, smart ways of providing for energy and smart ways of looking after our health. You know, medicine is obviously very high-tech, and we could keep that, but we could also go back to slower ways of doing some other things slower and more sustainable traditional methods, which could also bring more pleasure sometimes. I mean, some, you know, it's not an obvious pleasure to cut a hedge with a machine. Yeah. It's noisy and, you know, you have to drive this thing along, the, you know, the side of a hedge and it's not very good for the hedge either. People going back to doing more handwork, it, you know, it's not, a, it's not a disaster. So the, I'm not advocating getting rid of work altogether. I'm saying let's have mixed modes of working. Why we could introduce that with an alternative economic order. Um, but, I mean, the other thing to say, I suppose, about moving to a post-work culture is that we might find ourselves there, whether we want it or not, even under capitalist conditions simply because of the pressure of automation and the use increasingly of robots and drones to do um, jobs that were previously done by human beings. So I think we're going one way or another, we are going to have to face a future in which there is less work available mm. um, anyway. And how are we going to face that? If, if in, in any way that would not create absolute, you know, misery for people put out of work, 
we've got to introduce some kind of citizens' income. We've got to move to a more egalitarian way of thinking about meeting mm. basic human needs here, um, which would, I think, prompt a revised order of the economy inevitably. So I think it, not only because of climate change, but also because of the pressures that are being applied to um, to move to automated systems, we are going to have to work out some way of right. coping with that. Um, of, of moving to a post-work culture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But hopefully not a culture in which we also go on trying to grow right. the right. economy all the time. I mean that's I mean that's going to be a recipe for disaster ultimately. I mean how long do we go on producing GDP at the current rates, you know? Three hundred years, a thousand years. I mean it, to actually gratitude to, to reproduce the American style of consumption globally would take three planets. Wow. So it's not really a, a model that can be a, thought of as, as in any sense, sustainable. Um, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned um, earlier, and then also in your book, um, that this sustainable and environmentally friendly lifestyle is, um, is, is often... Um, not compatible with or, or feasible in in communities that might have uh, the resources to to do that, right? Um, you know, like less access to readily clean water might um, might you know lead people to buy water bottles more and that kind of thing. Um, so I guess I was also wondering um, how do we reconcile this this theory that sustainable lifestyles are often more fulfilling um, in the alternate alternate hedonist perspective. Um, with the fact that um, only wealthier um, or people with the means can kind of achieve that lifestyle? Well, uh, I don't think we can at the moment. I mean, I think that the first condition, and I'm not alone in arguing this. I mean, in a way, this is at the heart of most constructive environmental thinking and the new Green Deal is that we can't move to ultimately to a sustainable use of resources and therefore um, offset the, the worst consequences of global warming unless we have a more egalitarian society. Hmm. So I think, I mean, although it's true that at the moment that it's probably the slightly more affluent, well-off people who are in the best position to go green, Mm. Because they've got because organic goods and green produce often tends to be more expensive. Ultimately, if we want, we're tinkering, mm -hmm. and we're still locked in the market there as well. Um, so, if we really want to um, to think seriously about. To the next, how, how to, you know, create planetary health and the good life um, for people in the next hundred years or so. We're going to need to um, commit to producing uh, a more equal society. 
Yeah, yeah, it's like almost be the go hand. So I think the answer is it isn't reconcilable under the current conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's, in a way, you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting in America, I mean, I'm not saying um, that everything is right about the Biden moves, for example, but I think it has been recognised up to a point, is that these two things do have to go together, that that making some moves to improve the, the immense disparities in wealth in society is a is a, a prior condition of being able to be successful with any new green policies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it seems like, um, you know, a lot of the answers to these questions is like, um, you know, we have this end goal. Um, it seems like we're, we're pretty far from it in a lot of respects. Um, and, you know, so, so I guess I'm wondering um, what gives you hope still, um, you know, what, how do you keep the constant failures and disappointments, say, of um, environmental issues from discouraging you um, today? Well, to be honest, it's not easy, and the, particularly at the present time um, in the UK, it's not looking great. Um, we've got the the right sort of in the ascendancy, and we we've got a government under Johnson that says it's going to be. Um, improve things environmentally, but will they? You know, and how 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 serious is it really going to to be? I mean, there's a the the present plans here in Britain are certainly pretty vague, and they'll probably be rather partial. And a lot of the the flagship sort of policies around insulating homes and so on have already collapsed and and we're still investing in fossil fuels and so on and so on. So, I mean, it is very difficult to be optimistic. I mean, things look a little bit better than they did in America. Um, so you'd have to take some heart from that, mm-hmm. wouldn't you? Uh, but it, it's, yes, I mean, given where we we need to get and where we are at the moment. It can't, you can't be um, over-optimistic. On the other hand, and I've said this to other people who've asked this question, um, you have to remember that it's only probably 50 years ago, 40 years ago, maybe only, that political parties didn't even mention the word green mm-hmm. on the whole. The green parties maybe. Yeah. But the others never thought they had to even pay lip service to it. Right. So in what's happened over a very short period of time has been the absolute centralisation of the environmental issue within politics, wherever you are on a political spectrum. You cannot go to the country with an electoral manifesto that doesn't say quite a lot now about the environment and green policy. Now that, you know, so you know, there has been a change in that respect and we've got to take heart from the possibility of that change and acknowledge that it's all taking place in quite a short time and it's even taking place now around the world. 
you know, India and China, the places that we were told, there's no point us doing anything because India and China aren't going to do Well, they are actually doing things themselves as well. I mean, it is recognised now as a global condition, needing global solutions. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of promises being made that aren't likely to be fulfilled still. But, you know, the, the discourse is important um, and it has changed. Uh, and so, you know, one has to take, as I say, you know, one has to hope that we will fend off the worst consequences of our own actions now. Um, but, yes, we'll see. <laughs> and I think one thing that's encouraging about your book um, is that, like, there's a reason to switch this lifestyle, even if, um, you know, society doesn't make this shift before you're gone, right? Because you, you're emphasizing that this will actually bring you more pleasure if you um, if you are able to implement it. Um, and so it kind of, you know, um, gets rid of the, the argument or the, the, the thinking of, um, oh, I only have this many years. I might as well just, you know, buy what I want um, because nothing's going to change. But, but your book is definitely saying no, there's a reason to change, even if you don't see, you know, global change by the time by the time you're gone. So. Yes, no, I agree. I mean, actually, when I first started evolving the argument around alternative hedonism, I argued um, maybe a bit wildly in some ways that even if there was no need to change our ways for environmental reasons, which of course there is, yeah. it would still probably be, we'd still probably be enjoying better a better life mm -hmm. and avoiding more suffering around the world from exploitations of various kinds if um, if we did change our consumption and <clears throat> had a less time uh, scarce and driven growth driven way of thinking about the fulfillment of things um, and I you know that's you know in a way I still hold that position it, we shouldn't think of alternative consumption simply because we have to. You know? yeah. um, and I think one of the arguments I've, I've felt has been a bit neglected in a way by even those in the environmental movement on the left who recognise that we've got to change consumption, they, they often suggest that that's going to be regrettable. We well, have to do it, you know, but it, because otherwise we're going to have an environmental um, mm. disaster. But it's the suggestion has been that, you know, we want to keep on, if we possibly can, to this current form of consumption and find the technical means. I mean, there's a lot of faith in finding techie ways of, of technical fixes of various kinds that will allow us to continue to consume as mm. we already are. Um, None of those have really ultimately proved convincing. But even if they did, I mean, I think it's not the kind of argument that we should be using. I think we should be arguing, actually, are we really wanting this kind of lifestyle that we call affluent, that we claim is the good life? Or is it actually being driven in the interests of a very small economic elite now mm -hmm. who are actually gaining much more than anybody else is 
in the accumulation of wealth, which seems to be the only thing that they're really seriously bothered about, than anybody else. So in a way, I feel that what we call you know, affluence is, is being driven by corporate power of, of quite a small, a relatively small number of, of big multinational companies and uh, governmental support systems. But it's not in the interests of the majority of human beings. Um, although it's presented as if, you know, this was how we wanted to live and how and prosper. So I think we have to rethink that 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 sort of way of presenting it. Mm-hmm. And um and also challenge those on the left who seem to think that maybe we can all have luxury communism, as they put it, <laughs> through endless sort of recourse to technologies of various kinds, because that, that, that doesn't look to me very utopian either, actually. Um, so, yes. I mean, the other thing I think is that this this is increasingly being understood by people more in your your age group, your generation. Um, some of them, I think, are despairing a bit. I mean, there's these people who are very sad. who sort of wonder whether they can really have children because they don't, you know, they're frightened about the future for their children. And I understand that. I understand it completely. But I, you know, I... It is a policy of despair, and I think that alongside it, we need to actually keep faith with the possibilities. And and there's a lot of I've got. I do take encouragement from the moves that have been made by by young people now, um, even from school age. You know, the school kids going out on uh, in protest about the climate change and so on. So. Let's hope that it's not fair that you should be having to raise this protest, I don't think. I mean, the damage has been not done by you. But it would be important to make the argument more one, I think, around consumption. I mean, even Extinction Rebellion tends to, I think, still, although I, I support them, in lots of ways, but I do think there's still a sort of sense that it's it's they have got to do something about mm-hmm. it. I think we need to slightly shift that and um and begin to focus on our own consumption and whether whether we really are going to commit to buying that automobile or whatever or or changing our smartphone for the next model or you know i mean all these things keep it keep the show on the road you know um yeah i think a little bit of urgency is good but um like you're saying um we need um something else to grasp onto yes there should be a movement i think for an alternative prosperity Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be nice to have a lot of young people involved in that and heading it. Mm. It's going to have to be, I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, it seems like a pretty good um, place to, to come to a close. So thank you so much, um, Dr. Soper, for joining us today. This was, this was very interesting, um, and I'm sure a lot of people will have a lot to think about. So thank you. 
Yeah, thank you, and best wishes for your own work as well. Thank you. Thank you. See ya. You've been listening to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. And to stay up to date on upcoming events and programming, visit collegiuminstitute.org.